I love really liking a character and then realizing, oh my god, it's just a DILF and then lesbian daughter. Welcome to our first episode of Cowboys and Slaybots, a pop culture podcast. I'm Noah, my pronouns are he, him, and you can find me at social media at the Jewish Jedi. Hi, my name is Sage. You can find me on TikTok and on Twitter at Sage Sindula, and my pronouns are she, they. And basically what we're here to do is be two gay people who talk about pop cultural things that we care about and feel are worth discussing. That's it. That's the plot. Pay attention. That's all I have for you. <laughs> That's all we do normally. So we were like, okay, what if we just shared our thoughts too with the world? Pretty much. I mean, this is just us recording it, um, which I think is going to be very sliving. I'm very excited about it. Um, some hashtag lore. It's called Cowboys and Slavebots because I love cowboys and Sage loves robots. Yeah. And we're like, you know what? Where's that with that? Here we're we doing are. Great. The the story behind the sleigh bot in particular, I feel, is something that we can reveal in a later episode. Um, maybe when something comes out later on this year, early next year. Who knows? Maybe when something but, happens. Yeah. Just, just teasing the future a little bit. <laughs> Today, we're not talking about cowboys or sleigh bots. We're talking about our favorite trope in media, probably ever, uh, dilfs, murderous dilfs, if you will. And... Um, their queer murderous daughters. It's it's something though that I feel like we talk about just on the regular. Uh, we can always bring it into a conversation. I I would really agree with that. I think that it comes up a lot. Um, I love really liking a character and then realizing, oh my god, it's just this trope. It's just mm-hmm. a, a dilf and then lesbian daughter. It's mm-hmm. really fun putting the pieces together and realizing that that's what's happening. Um, I found. I like off the top of my head, I thought of so many examples of this uh, and I wanted to hashtag talk about them. Uh, the obvious one for the two of us being The Last of Us Part 1 and 2, because we here at Cowboys and Slaybots are Last of Us stands first and then people second. So mm-hmm. like that is such a clear example of that. But the other ones that I thought of were Logan as in the 2018 movie, Arcane, the animated series, which I'm just going to plug right now. If you haven't watched, you need to. That's all. We'll get back to that in a second. Um, Stranger Things, I feel, does fall into this trope, actually, in the first two-ish seasons, I would argue. Um, And then the sort of examples that I think don't fall into this trope specifically, but fall into a very, very adjacent trope are the fourth God of War game and the novel slash movie The Road. And I bring up those two as interesting differences because that's murderous Dilf and their son. And these function really differently to murderous Dilf and their daughter. And I was like, that's interesting. I think we should hashtag talk about it. We should. And I also want to bring forth another trope that is similarly adjacent to the Dilfs and their queer murderous daughters, which is the murderous girl boss and her gay son. I, so true. I think one of the this trope can be found also in the last of us with abby and lev i really do and i would agree and i would agree exactly like it's it's perfect and Um, that trope is magical mm -hmm. and i also think it cannot be found in uh volumes one through three 
of the comic series Something is Killing the Children. If you have not read Something is Killing the Children, you should do that. It's literally the best thing ever. I've been meaning to for so many weeks. It's not even funny. I'm like, I don't live that far from a comic shop. And I walk like basically near it on my way back from work every day. And I'm like, today is the day that I just, I go in there and I buy all their copies of Something is Killing the Children. And then I never do. And then I'm like, I like the day is coming. And when yeah. I read it, you will know because I'll be texting you about it as I read, which I do with pretty much everything these days. But mm-hmm. alas. It is it is actually perfect. There are like maybe half a flaw. Like I don't even, I couldn't even. Not even a full one flaw. No, half I couldn't of even one. Tell you. I'm obsessed with that. But yeah, yeah this trope fascinates and captivates me um, mostly because I find this relationship really, really wild. Like, Notably, also with a lot of these examples, the child is rarely biological. It's almost always adopted, which I find is like somewhat noteworthy, but I don't really know why. But I've noticed that like with the exception of a handful of these, the daughter is almost always an adopted or surrogate daughter. It's like never like this is my straight up child. And in fact, many of these really fucked up men have already lost a child in the first place. And they're like, well, we're going to do this again. But I find it compelling on some level because also this is one of the few avenues I find where these like what I would call heavily masculine male characters are forced to express any emotion that isn't like anger and rage. Like they have to be better people for these stories to work out. Um, And I find that that's true in The Last of Us, especially because Joel Miller, I love you, but you are one fucked up guy. Yeah, that's just reality. The overarching plot of these things tends to be that you have your really fucked up dad character who for some reason, fate, fortune, circumstance is thrust into a caretaking role of a daughter. And then through whatever journey they're going on, the father's like, I can't be emotionally distant and shitty anymore. Oh, well. And then he evolves, she evolves, the story finishes. Unless you're the last of us part two. And you look at the consequences of that narrative, which it's something. It's definitely something. (laughs) Yeah, I do think back to what you're saying about the adoptive daughter. They're not biological. I do think a part of that is uh, like a crossover with this found family trope, Mm. which has been getting like heavily more prevalent in all media over the years. But it's also just a very queer trope. And I think that is why we are so so enraptured by it. It's something that I think a lot of people are very like, oh, I need to attach to like a parental figure. Um, And I think a lot of queer people are kind of like, oh, I want a big, strong dad who will, you know, take care of me and kill people for me you know like not in real life but like if if this was you know well maybe in real life actually i mean i mean i'm not gonna i'm not gonna cop to anything one way or the other right like Um, i'm not gonna complain i think i think it just it is interesting that this very like hard masculine character is so enticing i think would be the word that i would use i'm kind of fascinated by that frankly because they just they are interesting to me. And I like too that um, they have to grow. Like the story necessitates that these men do better. I think actually, well, I've cracked it. That's why I tend to enjoy these a lot. Um, because the idea that a father becomes a better person for their child, let's just say that in real life, that may be quite absent uh, from, from many people. <laughs> and I just, I find this concept that like the father evolves not by choice but by necessity and then chooses to stay this better version of himself after the fact i'm enamored by this 
And I find it really interesting that a child is the mechanism of doing that. Um, what I do find interesting too is the way that daughters and sons in these stories respond separately to often their father's um, what I would call like necessary violence. Because notably, almost none of these stories take place in a world where nonviolence is a possibility. And I find that really interesting that like basically the father character's validation comes from protection and the only way that he's allowed to be protective is through violence. I find that noteworthy and I find it really interesting in terms of like, why does this seem to only appear where in situations where violence is a necessary condition of, of living, of being? Yeah, like, I'm I curious agree. about that. I also, I, I do think it's something along those lines is like usually in in any media that I'm consuming uh, if there's a very violent male character I'm kind of just like mm, not really my cup of tea like I don't really need to consume this I'm not going to relate to it in any way because I am not a violent man but when it comes to these these men protecting their like children out of necessity in violent worlds. I said one time, because one of these dopes and queer daughters that I'm bringing to the table today is Frank Castle and Amy from season two of The Punisher. Um, so true. Yeah. So true. I, I do think, I one time was thinking to myself, why am I so in love with Frank Castle? Like he is the embodiment of like not being able to let go. And he's such a violent man. And I'm like, why am I so in love with him? Like, why, why is what I do what is it? Yeah. this man? Um, and I said one time that he's really mother coded um, because he is. Okay, hear me out. He's literally. No, I'm, obs- I'm obsessed <laughs> with this. Frank Castle is mother coded, everybody. You heard it here first. He is not only is does he have children like biologically who do um, get murdered right in front of him, which is mm-hmm. something that, you know, like we said it happens in in this um dynamic in this trope but not only that every single thing he does is so ruled by this idea of i needed to be a better parent and everything that has happened to my family has happened because of me and i feel like that is something that is so like mm. it's very it's very feminine to me it's very like i need to protect my children at all costs I love them so much, like something like that to me, which is maybe it's just because it's a media thing. It's something to me that is very when I see anything that's any man, any violent man that is not present in this trope. I don't see that. You know, I never see this like protection, this nurturing quality in them. And that's just, you know, Mm -hmm. something to be said about how we represent men in media because, you know, the patriarchy, it it, it exists, unfortunately. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my god, hello. Hello? Why did my okay, entire Zoom just shut down? I'm being silenced. Are you, are you trying to talk about Frank Castle being mother-coded and you're being silenced by the, the woke left mob is canceling you? <laughs> um, anyways, Frank Castle's a very nurturing character. Every every person that he interacts with that he cares about, um, it's it's not only just a protectiveness, but also like a, it just feels motherly. It's like everything, every time I I see him on the screen, I'm like, wow, he's about to give this person a hug. And he never does, but you know, it always feels, except for that one scene with with Karen, but that's something different. That's something I- uh, Bye, bye, anyway. I'm out of here, I gotta go. Yeah. I, I think though, first of all, I'm living for the sentence Frank Castle is mother-coded, but I'm also amazed by the fact that like this character who is known for being, for often being mis- 
interpreted by men as like the the gold standard of masculinity this like lethal protector archetype um I find it interesting that he doesn't come off that way to me I'm not because I don't see him and I'm like oh people I should be like him in any way because like that's not what his character's for but I think that he fills his role really well and I think also a lot of these men during the metamorphosis between being a shitty human being and a not shitty human being, the earlier points of that, they're still really, really violent and they're still really, really aggressive, but because their motivations are so different, I find that I'm less endeared to them until inter-child character A, they start to change. I find it really interesting. And I think too, the thing with someone like Frank Castle, like Joel Miller, or really like any of the men that fit into this trope is that their violence is allowed by the narrative because that's what this character is for. But also it does often end up getting questioned by the other characters around them. Like we're not meant to look at them and think like this is a role model character. You're not supposed to be like them. But what they are is an internally consistent character. And I really value that. God, now I'm thinking about it because so so Kratos, have you played God of War 4? No. Have you played any of the God of War games? No. <laughs> okay. And that's totally fine. So just know that Kratos is like, he's super fucked up. Like okay. this dude has been through hella trauma. Um, he's lost, I believe, multiple families at, at the point when you meet him in the fourth God of War game. And he's basically, he has a son, Atreus, and his wife at the beginning of the game has just died. And it's their journey to go spread her ashes. That is That is the plot. And Kratos sucks at being a dad. Like, objectively, he's terrible at fatherhood. He's not emotionally open. He's not kind. He has no patience with his son whatsoever. And the game is just him basically, like, seeing that the outcome of that parenting is that Atreus kind of sucks for a while. <laughs> like, he gets better. But ultimately, like, Kratos is like, oh, in my quest to not pass on the violent urges and tendencies that I have to my son... I've also been completely closed off the entire time. So he has to evolve. And we see this through these heartbreaking scenes where the camera pans and you see Kratos go to put his hand on Atreus' shoulder, but he doesn't do it. Like he can't force himself to be intimate with his child until the end of the game. But what I find so interesting about this is that like Atreus has to learn of his dad's violence to get a total picture of him, but he also chooses to reject that violence. So it's like, that is a part of the character and that's a part of the person we're meant to empathize with, but we're also supposed to say, well, this is bad. The literal decades Kratos spends carving a blood canyon through most of Greece is bad. He shouldn't have done that. That's bad. That's not good. And I think that that's the most mature version of this trope is when we see like the violence of the father is negative. It's like, we feel good about it because the idea of like a very protective father archetype is nice because where is that in the real world? If you know, please tell me, I would love to find out. But ultimately we are meant to look at them and be like, that behavior is bad. It's not healthy. It's not productive. It's not good. Uh, And we also see that in The Last of Us Part Two, because the whole game is Ellie trying to replicate what she saw Joel do, and it literally breaks her, because, like, that's not what people should be doing. It's bad. Like, it's bad for you mentally and emotionally. Yeah, it is. Like, she's so self-destructive in in that whole game. It's not only just about, like, oh, okay, not... I, are we doing spoilers? Are we doing massive spoilers for The Last of Us? I mean... I feel like we kind of have to to talk about, like we can't talk about half without talking about what ends up happening to the dads in 90% of these stories. 
which is yeah. they don't fare very well. No. Speaking of which, actually, when you were talking, um, it, I was thinking how the almost complete opposite of that. Usually, the the trope has the the audience has to see it, right? The audience has to be like, "Oh, this is bad." It's never like flat out stated because a lot of the media's that have this trope in it is in the perspective of the dad, and mm-hmm. he is the one who we're like rooting for, right? It's the same with Frank Castle, same with Joe or Joel. <laughs> Not me. My bestie Joe. My <laughs> bestie friend Joe. Joe? <laughs> Joe um, Miller? Oh my God, <laughs> hey, what are you doing here? <laughs> Anyways, in a piece of media that we um, see almost the complete opposite is Arcane. It's in Vi's perspective, a majority of the show. Right. And she is looking up to Vander because she sees him as somebody who has become so successful in this underworld, in this uh, dystopian society that they live in because he used violence to get to a lot of places whereas in the time the story starts in episodes one through three vander is like no 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 this is not how we do things i did i used my like power my violence and it backfired and it back it did backfire for him in the sense that he lost a really healthy relationship with Silco that turned bad because they disagreed, Um, which ends up the consequences of that end up being Vi and her sister Jinx, their whole lives are basically ruined. Basically, yeah. And, yeah. And it is the, it is really when you get down to it, the the consequences of Vander's actions. But in Arcane, we're seeing we're starting at a point where it's after he's already renounced that side of him. But Vi, being the queer daughter of this trope in this show, she's kind of like, no, I don't see that. I don't I don't care that you've renounced it. We need to get things done. The only way we're going to do that is through violence. And when we meet her, she's young. She's probably like 16, 17. And she's like, we can already see the self-destructive behavior that she's using. She's She is a leader, but she doesn't act like it in the sense that oh, I need to take care of all these people by example. It's more like you do what I tell you to do because I'm stronger. And that right. ends up really biting her in the ass <laughs> later on in the show. But I just think that's super interesting that he, Vander, he met his demise very violently and poorly because of the consequences of his actions. But we didn't really see any of those actions. And that's, I think, why we feel so attached to him. He's n- just a good dad. Like, he's just a good dad for the first three episodes. And, like, and he has to be that because of what his past is. And what I find so interesting, too, about, like, Vi as a character is that her direct mistrust of others and her decision that, like, there is only power through strength is what ends up making a lot of her life a lot harder. Like, her self-imposed isolation and her decision that, like, I'm going to be strong the way that I think Vander was strong ends up hurting her. And I think ultimately it's very interesting because in those first three episodes before shit really hits the fan for the characters in Arcane. Um, oh, episode that, three. <laughs> oh, episode three. I was not ready. I was not ready at all. But you see that Vander's power is through connection. It's through societal, like it's through a web of people who care about and trust him. And he's open with those people. And I think we see this a lot with like, I guess what I would call the more evolved version of this trope, which is the aftermath. So because Kratos in God of War 4 is very similar. He doesn't, he literally is like, 
a guy comes to his house and is like, I'm here to beat you to death. And he's like, I really don't want to do this right now. Like, we don't have to, like, whatever you want. I don't really have it, but like, we don't have to fight. It's because the guy literally tries to murder his son. that He's like, okay, well, you made me do this. But what I find interesting is that Kratos has to learn the lesson that Vander has already learned, which is that community is the actual, like, where power comes from. It's not in isolation and it's not in this, like, Homeric violence that these male characters tend to engage with. Um, which is so interesting because Joel also gets that lesson. Like Joel's decision to settle in Jackson is ultimately what gives him a life instead of just being what we know him as in the first game, which is sort of a violent human being with no regard for others. Like, I think it's very telling that the beginning of The Last of Us Part Two, Joel saves Abby, even though she's a complete stranger. I don't believe that the old Joel would have done that. So he has, he's changed, he's become better. But what I find interesting is that because of when these characters grow up with these father figures, they learn only half that lesson. They get the aspect of violence is power, violence is protective, but they never see that it's actually incredibly damaging and self-destructive and isolating. And we see Ellie go through that. We see Vi go through that for sure. Like that somebody would argue the entire plot of Arcade moves towards conclusion of like, it's okay to have friends. You should talk to people more often. <laughs> okay, Lynn, in, I love in, you so in much. defense of Vi, she was literally in prison for like seven years. Like <laughs> Well, and like look at what look at what happened to her right after. Like, not only was she learning the wrong lesson from Vander's history, but the only time she would have had to process that, Vander literally gets horribly disfigured and then blown up. Yeah. And then she's like left alone in the world. It what was she meant to and I find that interesting too, that in many of these cases, the loss of the father is deeply traumatic and it's also unexpected. Um, and I think that that's, I think that's an aspect of this trope that I really, I really don't like um, because the female characters that are left behind are left completely adrift. Um, they're never allowed to have like a send off where they find any degree of peace. Uh, and I don't love that because it creates this cycle where like they're, destroying themselves in a way that I honestly would argue when this trope appears, we actually don't see sons having to go through. Like God of War, Kratos hasn't actually like died, died yet. Although there is some foreshadowing at the most end of the recent game that that's what's happened in the next one. But The Road, which is a 2006 movie and a much older novel is about a father and son in a post-apocalypse. And the father does really shit things to survive because the world is horrible. Um, and the son is learning these things, but when the father eventually dies, the son is not adrift. He's not on a path of vengeance. He's not on a, a set out length of self-destruction. Um, and I don't think that that will, that if Kratos dies, Atreus will be also like, I need to go on a quest for Homeric violence and restore my father's honor. But we see that a lot of the female characters in this trope, where they're on the other side of that, that's the path they end up walking. And I, I, I wonder, I basically I'm like, I wonder why that is. I'm interested in, in why that seems to happen with these people. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that something along the lines of just like the representation of the female characters in, in most of this media, because like I was saying earlier, it does center around the men. And sometimes I do feel like it can not be very great for 
as like as like a woman watching it and being like oh like why is why is this like child this little girl like going through it and she's really not processing the trauma that she's going through in a healthy way at all and that's of course a part of the plot right and that's how we move the Mm -hmm. narrative along however there is a it is to a point sometimes where i'm like okay but is now it's not a part of the plot you know i feel like there's sometimes even in the last of us 2 which is literally my favorite thing ever um i thought that there's some parts in it where i'm like wow this is a lot like this is a lot and i felt that way not necessarily playing as ellie i mean yes we're playing as ellie but really is playing as abby I was like, mm-hmm. this girl went through it. Her father did die too. And I think that as the way the game was set up is a literal masterpiece. But I think that one of the pitfalls was not really giving Abby room to grieve her father during like the Seattle days, not during the flashbacks. We saw like her coming upon her father's right. body. Like we we know how horrible that was for her How because we saw it happen. But during these Seattle days, when she is in the thick of it, she's not thinking about her dad very often. And this is the whole reason why she's on this, why she's in this situation in the first place is because she went to get revenge for her father's death. Um, whereas when we're playing as Ellie, there's always little mentions of Joel. She's always talking to Joel when like Ellie walks by a movie poster she's like oh Joel like this reminds me of you it puts the game into so much perspective and of course that is because you know we did play The Last of Us 1 which was about Ellie and Joel Uh, but I think that's one of the places where that game fell short was we had such an such an introspective view on Abby but a lot of her trauma kind of got cut short because we, how is this affecting her now? You know, right. it's always just a, oh, I got revenge. Oh shit. And now I'm in trouble because hit that man's murderous queer daughters after me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think that in a lot of ways, like basically Abby's lesson that revenge is dissatisfying and is inherently like unhelpful to her. It's good. But I think the hardest part about video games too as a medium is that the player empathizes through action so it's really difficult when like we can we can see that it's sad also laura bailey acts the fuck out of everything that she's in and so like you really feel for her but ultimately you've spent no time with her father and you spent no time with their relationship and i also find it very interesting in discussing this trope that like her dad was not like joel like objectively, I would even argue that they they form opposite identities. But what's interesting to me is that like we don't really see, we don't really understand Abby's relationship to her dad. We hear about a couple relationships with or a couple like references to it, but ultimately we don't understand him because we've never like played as him. We've never seen into his head the way that the game showed us Joel. I will also say, and again. I am a Last of Us 2 girly. I have loved that game since it came out. It does mean a lot to me. But there are a lot of scenes where you're like, okay, I love that we have a very largely female cast, but then it gets so excessively violent that you're like, I think that it almost borders on trauma porn at some point where it's like this game, which strongly features a lot of women is also significantly more brutal than any section in the entirety of the first game. And part of that is just like chronological evolution, like time since that game was made has passed storytelling of, of this developer has changed but it's like 
as much as we see the father character go through, the daughter is generally meant to endure worse. And I feel that that often leaves a very bad taste in my mouth when it comes to like how this ends up being portrayed. But I I think it's complicated. Also, I love the Abbey days. I will admit that up until like my most recent playthrough of that game, I didn't hit as strongly. I really don't know why. Because like, obviously they're the same every time. But like, most recent time I was like, no, I get it. Like, I, I get yeah. what you did, what you did, dude. Like what Joel did. And I think... I think ultimately, and this brings us into that essay that I that we have we've read for this little episode. Um, <laughs> I think ultimately, what really works about The Last of Us One and Two as a as a complete narrative is that while you probably didn't like what Joel was doing at the end of The Last of Us One, you really don't like it by the end of The Last of Us Two. Like yeah. the wrongness of it was clear at the end of the first game, but it's so thoroughly cemented by the end of the second. Like. And I think that makes it a good story. These characters are allowed to be their worst selves at some point. But like, yeah, I think that game is a lot. I could talk about that game for, we could have a whole episode on that game alone, to be totally honest, if we're being real with ourselves. But like, so true. we're not going to do that. So like I was saying, in conjunction with like, looking at this trope, um, there is an essay that has been making the rounds since it was published in 2017. It is by Sarah Stang? Yeah. S-T-A-N-G. Called Big Daddies and Broken Men, Father-Daughter Relationships in Video Games. And this essay essentially uh, talks about this, The well, the trend that we're talking about today, which is, I mean, she doesn't use the academic term, which is murderous dilf and lesbian daughter, but I am going to simply have to forego that because what else we're going to do? But this essay basically discusses Bioshock 2, The Walking Dead, The Telltale Game, Bioshock Infinite, and The Last of Us. And it attempts to critique basically the ways that female characters in these games, the daughter characters specifically, have reduced agency in in comparison to their father figures. And also how these daughters, in the author's opinion, only exist for paternal redemption. Like that's what their function is in the narrative. I have mixed feelings about a lot of this. Um, I will say that I haven't played any of the Bioshock games. Um, so I don't I don't know what happens in them outside of like a synopsis of the plot but um one critique that this author I think rightfully levies at this trope is the possibility of the female character lacking any real agency especially because she is a child who must be protected like that seems to be something that that is common in this criticism is like well this daughter character is incompetent or incapable of defending themselves so the father necessarily has to do that but I would argue, at least in the examples that we've looked at today, like that isn't the case. Like if anything, the daughter character is incredibly competent. That's like part of her her narrative. No, I, I agree. So I have not played any of these games except for The Last of Us, but I have read the graphic novel Clementine by Tilly Walden. So I do know who these characters in the video game The Walking Dead are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I cannot, I cannot attest to how well Clementine is represented in that game. Um, have you played the Walking Dead game? I have not. I mean, I watched many a playthrough of it when it first came out. Um, I will say something this essay mentions that I find noteworthy is basically that like player choice, because it's a telltale game, impacts Clementine's development in a way that you don't get in The Last of Us or mm-hmm. in the Bioshock games, because like obviously The Last of Us is not a choice game, like it's a story game. You you like you don't have a choice in how the characters develop. But what I find most interesting basically is like this essay at some point is like this trope is really is really bad and mishandled because basically like the father gets redemption through violence and the daughter becomes more violent. 
And it's like, I guess my biggest thing about that, at least, in, and once again, I cannot speak for Bioshock because I haven't played the Bioshock games, but in The Last of Us, I would argue Joel doesn't attain redemption. Like, I would argue even that he fails super hard at it, and that's the impetus for the second game in the first place, is like, he does a shitty thing, and he's not allowed to move past that shitty thing. It literally ends up killing him in the end. Like, And also, we, the player while we empathize with why he does what he does, I think the real best part of The Last of Us Part Two is that because we play as Abby, it's like, if you were if you were in any way unsure about the morality of Joel's actions in the first game, which frankly you should not have been, but like, if you were, you're pretty sure by the end of the second game that what he did is objectively bad and wrong. Like, I think it does a great job of pointing that out. And I think in many ways, because the second game exists, it subverts this idea that like the father attains redemption through the through violence around the daughter because joel doesn't end up redeemed yeah no i agree and i also i also never when i was reading that i never really even got that vibe that he was even trying to necessarily redeem himself as a figure like definitely the psychology behind a lot of the times where ellie is in danger and he's like protecting her with his life are very much rooted in the fact that he did lose a daughter but mm-hmm. I never thought of that as, oh, I have to save this one because I couldn't save the last one. Like, I never right. ever had that, like, inkling um, when playing either of the games, really. But, like, especially in the first one, I just felt like that was just a concrete part of his character. And not because he necessarily lost a daughter, but because he was a father at one point and had a child who he loved very much. Yeah. That he already has that protective nature in his brain already set and because we also see it with even with him and Tess like he very much is protective of Tess he's just a protective person in general and that's why we love him you know that's why we're obsessed with Joel Miller but I think that that's just his character I never ever thought while playing I was like oh like this is some kind of damsel in distress but with a child and a father like I never ever felt that as in terms of agency I would agree yes I mean of course, Ellie would have less agency, but that's because of the nature of the game. You're not playing as Ellie for a majority of it, and it's a story game. Like, it's already yeah. concrete, and they're, the development that each character is going to go through is already pre-written. You don't get to choose. I also thought that there's, there's like, one line in this one sentence in this article. It's on page 171 that I was just like, wait, what? It says, <laughs> rather than preparing Ellie to survive in the world on her own terms, Joel in The Last of Us teaches Ellie to survive as he has through extreme violence and mistrust of others, which is perhaps why Ellie seems to question whether survival is even worth it at all. Um, yeah. I mean, the first part was kind of, yeah, points were made. Like, he did kind of teach Ellie how to survive as he survived, like, endure and survive is literally like the whole point a little catchphrase yeah exactly but the second part i was like what because it wasn't it wasn't necessarily yes joel did take ellie's agency from her her choices from her at the end of the game when he decided to take her from the fireflies however he was not the only one the fireflies did not ask her if she was willing to sacrifice her life for this cure yeah and to be honest I really don't know what she would have done in that situation because part of me is like, oh yeah, she would be selfless in like, she would want to be like, oh, I've gone this far. I might as well. But also 
we have to remember she is 14 years old and a 14 year old anybody who no matter how much you've gone through cannot make that choice for themselves they can't I would also say too like I think that that sentence is so I remember reading them being like did we play the same game? That's exactly. a good question. Because what I recall too, when you make it to Utah and Joel is like, we don't have to do this because he realizes that this journey there's coming to an end and he doesn't know what's next. Like Ellie is like, no, like we do. Like everything I've done can't be for nothing. Like despite what she's gone through in that game, she still decides that people are worth trusting and that they are worth taking care of. Like, it's by her advocacy that you end up with half the NPCs that you do. When you meet Sam in in Pittsburgh, she's like, we should go with them. Why would we do this on our own? And like, and then when they end up basically, you know, like leaving Joel when when the whole gun car tank incident happens, like it's Ellie who's like, okay, yeah, they kind of fucked up, but like we should still be with them. Like we should still hang out with these guys. They're not bad people. We shouldn't abandon them. And, like, that's just who she is as a person. I don't think that she at any point abandons the hope that she carries with her for other people. And, like, we see in part two that she's definitely more calloused and she has a lot, she's a little bit more jaded towards survival in and of itself, but not because Joel doesn't, like, Joel, like, knocks the hope out of her. Like, I just, I find that, yeah, I find that comment very, I think, weird. Um, and I think also because ultimately the idea that Joel's lie is venerated by the by the story or that he ends up vindicated for what he did is non-existent. Like, no. the game does not in any way, shape, or form communicate that he made what we would call the right choice. I think what he made is a choice that makes sense for him. And I, that's what I love about The Last of Us is that it commits to its characters. Like they're internally consistent. They act as they, as they are. And that makes sense to me. But I think the idea that like he, like the universe rewards him in any way, like it doesn't. It's this decision that ends up actually killing him. It ruins, his lie is what ruins his relationship with Ellie in the first place. Like, and ultimately as much as I'm like, yeah, I, I think that Ellie surviving the first game is the better of those options. I'm also like, she has every right in the world to be upset and angry and not sure how to feel about this. Like ultimately, and that's part of what part two is about is like, can she forgive Joel? Should she? And I find that that question is really integral to a lot of these, you know, relationships under this trope is like, do you owe that parental figure forgiveness for what the, for what they've done or what they're about to do? That's a really interesting question that I think plays out well in these. But the idea that somehow these characters exist only for the redemption of their male counterparts, I feel just isn't a fair interpretation of what this trope is often employed for, especially in its more mature form. Like we've, we've talked about Vi and Vander and like Vi has to learn that Vander's violence is not what made him a strong person. That's like half of her arc in the in Arcane is like understanding that what Vander did to establish himself is not what is on a path she should follow down. It's not healthy. It's not good. It ultimately hurts her and those around her. Like that's a lesson. It's not that we venerate the violence of these male characters. It's actually that if you let the if you let the story progress long enough, the conclusion is that violence was bad. It was unjust. It was unnecessary. It shouldn't have happened with it. It did. So I'm conflicted about this essay's point, at least vis-a-vis The Last of Us, because it's the only game of this that I've played. 
so they can actually like speak to it. I do know in Bioshock, it seems like that's less of the case because the ideal reality for the main protagonist of Bioshock is either he dies to save his daughter or he gets to do a literal like alternate dimension do-over with her where he can mm-hmm. actually be like his best self. And that I would agree is the the bad version of this trope where like this whole story exists for the redemption of the father, the female character involved isn't a character in her own right. She just exists for the story. But I would argue that in a lot of cases, that's not what really happened. No, I completely agree. And I think a little bit later in the paragraph of the one that I was just talking about in this essay, it, it is doing the comparison thing between Bioshock Infinite and The Last of Us, which as I was reading about the comparisons between these two, I was like, um, maybe not. Like, I don't like, I've never played the game, but I don't think that it kind of compares to The Last of Us in a lot of aspects, yeah. at least at least in like the nuances of it. But there's a line here that says the final word is, of course, given to Booker, who is the uh, protagonist of Bioshock Infinite and Joel. They get another chance at fatherhood and the players are therefore reassured of getting a good ending, even if they did not have any control over it. Kind of going back to what we were saying, I I don't think that anyone really finished The Last of Us and was like, wow, yeah, I'm so glad that Joel Miller did that, that he killed- Positive vibes only. Like, Like, I don't think anyone, like, I remember- The first time, actually every single time I have played The Last of Us, I'm just kind of like sit there for a while. And I'm just like, why would he do that? But also like, I love him, but also like, and it makes sense. But why on earth? Like, you know, it's not a, a good ending in terms of like the word good being as in beneficial to any of the characters. Right. It's a fantastic ending storytelling wise, especially if you are considering part two to be, you know, a part of the overarching narrative. It's a fantastic place to pause. It's not a good ending. Like, it's sad and it's upsetting. Right. I I agree with that. I mean, like, first of all, I cannot overstate how much the cast of this game. I'm like, y'all really gave it all of your stuff. But like... (laughs) Ashley Johnson saying, swear to me that everything that you said about the fireflies is true. And Joel saying, I swear. And she's like, okay. But you hear it in her voice and you see it in her face. Like, she knows that's a lie. And it's a dissatisfying lie at that. Like, when you finish The Last of Us, you're not left with a sense of any real victory. You're just like, that hurt. And I feel bad. And I think the, I I will say an interesting thing about games like The Last of Us and games as as a storytelling medium where you don't have a lot of choice um, is that you feel conflicted about what happens at the end of of that chapter of the game. Like the first time I played it, I was like, I I was in like middle school or something. So I was, I was actually quite young, but like as an adult playing it, I'm like, this is like, you're killing all the fireflies. And I'm like, this is wrong. Like, I don't really want to do this, I don't think. Like, I have really conflicting feelings about it. And I think the game really capitalizes on that because what it's trying to do is not make the player feel good. They're trying to tell a story. And I think that that's a really key difference between this and other narratives. And I will say that, like, in some of these cases, that's definitely, like, the story is about the redemption of the father and the daughter character involved is not all that important to that. Like, she is reduced to a one object that requires saving or training. But in any case, 
I don't think The Last of Us is a good example of that. And this was written in 2017, which was before part two even came out. So it it can't take that into account. Um, but I think that's also true of stuff like Arcane, of God of War, where like the child ends up having to acknowledge the deep flaws in their parent. And then we have to see what happens in the aftermath of that, which is fascinating. Like it's always, if it's well-written, that is like, which is obviously not all of them are, but like, when it's well-written, it can be a really interesting cross-examination of a character because the way that Joel is not ready to the end of part one, he certainly is not redeemed throughout part two. He doesn't get that. He doesn't, he's never really handed any serious redemption. And I think that's a really good part of that story is that you never leave it going like, well, I feel good about what I just did. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> because you don't, you like, you really don't, you're not getting an action hero ending out of that. And I would, I mean- in most of these cases, you're not like, whew, that was positive. I feel really uplifted after that one. Like, you feel shitty. Like, you feel bad. But it's a good story. And I would say, like, we're talking about my favorite now mother-coded character, Frank Castle, earlier. (laughs) Like, Frank Castle does a lot of shitty things. Right. He's, He's a really great character insofar as, like, he's very internally consistent and he's very well written. But, like, objectively he does bad things to people sometimes. And I think that it's the mark of a good character in this trope where you're not leaving being like, everything he did was so justified and so great all the time. And I agree with everything I love. Like, it just doesn't feel like that's real. And I feel like it's almost like there are two sides to the coin that is this trope. And on one side, you have the version that we like. And on the other side, you have the version where it really is centering a father that you're meant to agree with for the entirety of the game or the entirety of what of whatever narrative you're looking at, basically. Yeah, of course. Especially, I think, when when we get to season two of The Punisher, after season one, you're like, wow, Frank Castle's really been through it, right? Like, especially yeah. at, the end of, at the end, and you're just like, wow, that, like, his life is just, like, one horrible thing after another after another. And then you get to season two, and he's just a guy. You know, he's really vibing. He's out he's in the country. He's just some dude. He's being a cowboy. Like, he is so, like, so true of him. He's finally trying to rest. And then here comes this girl in his life who is being hunted down by Pilgrim or whatever his name is. That, yeah. That fucked I, up guy. <laughs> that entire subplot of that season. There were so many things going on in season two. But that whole subplot so true. was um, But... I think there is literally a line in that episode in season two, episode one, where Amy, the girl, she's like freaking out. Basically, she almost just got killed for like four or five days straight. Like, yeah. like she's hashtag on the run. Like she's with the Punisher, like not that she knows who he is yet. But I mean, Frank Castle is kind of scary sometimes. And I love him for it. Like, I love him for so it. True. But Frank Castle is saying things like, I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm just like, call me traditional or whatever. But if you were a man being attacked, I would have drank my beer and left. Like I would have finished my beer and I would have left. And and there's something about that that's so like, it, it gives you the ick a little bit. But also you're like, oh, how sweet. <laughs> but I think also like, and this is my, this is my beef with a, a number of people who unfortunately insist on willfully misinterpreting the Punisher. Like, mm-hmm. That line, you're not supposed to be like, ah. <laughs> like, no, exactly. 
because he's not like a character you're supposed to be like he is just like obviously we're like he's so he's really because he is but like ultimately like narrative intent wise frank castle is a fucked up little dude yeah he's not a good person he's got a lot going on and he's not meant to make you feel elated or happy although he does have a lot of those moments but like He's meant to be a reflection of what happens when you give in to your truly like most violent impulses and how that is dissatisfying and really like throughout his life in the comics too. Like you see him just go through like trial after trial after trial and he doesn't find any peace from that. And that's what's great about his narrative, I think, is that sense of like this there's there's a great line at the end of God of War, a game that I can't stop gushing about also because Christopher Judge, who voices Kratos, so sly like can't even express it but basically like this this character goes to kill his mom near the end of the game and kratos stops him and is like this path you walk vengeance you'll find no peace i know and i'm like okay yeah you are the you're the fully evolved version of this and i feel like characters like frank castle fully exemplify that because like you watch them go through all this random like this shit they're trying to get through and are they happy at the end of it do they find any real emotional peace or stability? No. No. No, it's not there. Alas, not. But yeah, no. Frank Castle, girly, you truly are so mother-coded. I, I think is. that might be one of like the most transient things I've ever heard from a human <laughs> being. Frank Castle is mother-coded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah. No, I was just going to say that there that along the lines of like him and Amy in this season, there's a point in their arc, in their character arc, that they are so distrusting of each other and amy has seen frank castle's true self it's not just oh he's trying to protect me and he'll like get me out of this really bad situation that i got myself into she's realizing oh this man is very deeply fucked up and he is he's not here to just help me and he's actually making my life a lot worse um, yeah. And I think that is a huge part of showing the, the problems that come with this trope is like, it can't always be great because these murderous father figures are the former, they're murderous, and they're not, yeah. a lot of them have done such horrible things. And I would say like, characters like Vander, who have kind of not, he's never really redeemed himself, but he's been doing good for the entire amount that we've known him, the amount of time right. we've known him, he has been helping people and unfortunately that side of him the part that you like you were saying that he grew through community that did not rub off on Vi and that is really where her downfall is uh, all the way through until the finale all the way through into the finale. Quite literally, yeah, to the, like the last moment, even. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and just go watch Arcane. If you yeah. watch Arcane, watch Arcane. Watch Arcane, and yeah, and then we'll do a whole episode on Arcane at one point. But <laughs> when we do our rewatch, yeah, yeah, yeah we we'll yeah. go back through it. So true. <laughs> but I was saying about Frank Castle in Amy, I think that even after that, even after you're like, wow, this is not going to be a good relationship. They're not going to get through this because Frank is off you know trying to kill billy russo and also try to kill this other guy at the same like he's doing so he's much booked and busy yeah he's doing the most in this season and even still he goes after billy he is literally on the brink of death he's in the hospital and amy's like shit i gotta get him out i gotta get him out this is my whole thing and 
this episode it's called the abyss i think it's like episode like nine or something of season two yeah, it's literally for sure where it is hold on keep talking it is literally my favorite episode of the punisher ever partly because it was written and directed by women and you can really tell you can really tell love but this in this episode she amy is going to try to take frank castle and rescue him from the hospital basically because he is cannot leave by himself but it's also the point in the story where frank is having a moral dilemma for the first mm. time, like he really has not, like in this in the yeah. Marvel show, in the Marvel Netflix show, we have not really seen him have such a moral dilemma based on his code that he has been going by for years. Um, because his his code was always, "Oh, I'm right and you're wrong, and all the people I kill deserve it." Yeah. And this is at a point where he has, he thinks he has killed three women, three innocent women, and he's like, "I deserve to die." He's like, I'm not better than any of the people I've killed. And it's so interesting that it's that one thing, right? Because really, you're kind of like, as as people who are not involved in the world of Frank Castle, we're kind of watching this as a, oh, but he's killing everyone. Like, still people, you know? But to him, these, these three women that he's killed, this is the tipping point. This is the, oh, I deserve to die. And um, ultimately, it is Amy and then, um, Karen and Agent Madani. <laughs> so true of them. This whole episode was fantastic for women all around the world, to be completely honest. They're finally the ones- a win. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. They're the ones who are like who figure out like how to help Frank and get him out because they truly do believe in him. And I think it's so interesting that the women and the woman in the Punisher, um, how they react to Frank. Uh, because it's very much the same as like how kind of I would say like how Ellie reacts to Joel in The Last of Us One mm-hmm. is you know at first she has she's grown up in like military camp basically yeah she has been trained to kill for her entire life but when she's actually out in the world and is seeing it happen there's a whole scene the first person she shoots the first non-infected person she shoots she's like wow I shot the hell out of that guy like she's freaking out for a minute yeah and joel gets mad at her first of all which is you know what maybe that moment was also mother coded you know when you do something really bad and you're like are putting yourself in danger and your mom comes up to you and he's like don't do that and like freaks out (laughs) is joel miller mother coded i think joel miller is mother coded but only only semi not as much as frank castle Frank Castle is so true. Mother. <laughs> ha- that's hashtag mother right there. And the mother in question is Frank Castle. This is Frank Castle. Yeah. <laughs> I I will say I'm fascinated by that. And I will say um, there's a section of this essay that I do really agree with, which is like, you can have the same thing with a maternal protagonist. We just rarely, ra- rarely see it. Um, and that's what I love about Abby and The Last mm-hmm. of Us Part Two. Like, she gets to be this lethal protector for Lev. Also, if I don't have a Lev DLC in my life soon, uh, Please. I will cause problems. Yeah. I just wanted to let everyone know that the Lev DLC, please, I, I need it so bad. Um, But like, Abby gets to fill the role of lethal protector whilst also being a woman. And I'm like, so we can do it. Like, where possible, I think we can do it. Um, but I also think what's interesting about her journey is that, like, 
she really does feel like the only way forward in her life is through violence when we meet her. Um, and I find it so interesting that like, she just sort of, I, I think what's interesting about Abby is that her shift between like violence and, and less violence, I'd say nonviolence, but that's like factually not how that game yeah. goes. Um, but it's that she sees the toll that it's taken on herself and her relationships and her friends. Like you have this moment where Owen, who also I'm like, Owen Gurley, frankly, I think you deserve better than you got, but all right. Oh, well, I miss you. Um, but like, Owen's like, I'm just, I'm tired of hurting people for no reason. I don't care anymore. Like, this is stupid. And that being her turning point, I think is really interesting because for a lot of the other characters, the turning point in their violence, like at least for characters like Joel is, you know, I have to do this to protect the people I care about. But the turn for Abby, and I would also argue for Frank, is like that the violence is pointless. Like this episode, which I found, by the way, uh, The Abyss is actually episode 11. Uh, It's near the end of the season. But like, you have him carry this guilt over it. And I think it's spiritually similar to Abby where it's like, what's the, like, I'm not better. My violence is not more justified. It's not more um, like necessary to the world. And I think that's a really potent conclusion for characters to come through. Kratos also comes to that in the God of War franchise because Kratos is known as like this incredibly violent killer. And at some point he's like, for what? what have I really accomplished with that method of being alive? Nothing. Like, and I don't know. I think that's like, that's the the final form of this trope is like the realization that violence and power, no matter what world we situate the characters in, these are not, they don't conflate. Violence and power are not the same thing. You can have, you can be protective and you can be alive without mass violence to protect and justify your actions. And I just like, I think that's a really good message to have. And I think it's interesting that in a lot of these cases, not all, but some, um, the father dies like just after learning that, which I don't love. I like it a lot better in stories like so far in God of War, where like the, this lesson is learned and the character survives it. Like in Logan, the 2018 movie, Logan does not really live through that. Like he dies at the end of that movie in a passion. <laughs> like that's how it ends. And I'm like, okay, all right sure yeah i think that if if we're going to talk about like them dying at the like right as they have this realization right it kind of goes back to like what we both talk about a lot in star wars where it's like oh as soon as you have your redeeming moment you die and then there's no actual redemption arc for you there's no actual way to make you a better person because you've just died so now you are you are almost like almost a martyr because of what you have realized but also you haven't actually put in the work you know yeah Um, and so I feel like that is kind of almost almost the same with Joel I feel like Joel and Ellie because their relationship was not good at the beginning of this game you know at the end of the or at the beginning of the last of us two and Joel dies right before they're getting somewhere which is so upsetting right and as as someone who's gone in in it we we realize this at the very very end of the game is the last scene uh which is even more heartbreaking and also just literally attests to how brilliant the like layout and the narrative structure of the last of us is um but when you think about it and think of everything chronologically you're like wow they were just like right there like that was the stepping stone that they had to fix their relationship or get it to a place where they could 
healthily bond, you know? And, um, but he died. So not Sly. Anyways. I, well, I will say this too about that moment. I think what's so interesting about Ellie as a character is that, like, her redemption is something she has to live through. Because by the end of the game, and I will say this too, I remember playing The Last of Us 2 for the first time. And, like, by the time you get to Santa Barbara, I was like, I don't like this game anymore. No, like, exactly. It's upsetting and it drags on and you're like, this sucks. And I had this, like, epiphany where I was like, oh, I'm supposed to feel shitty. Mm-hmm. Like, because you don't really think about violence in a video game setting as anything other than, like, a part of the action you have to do to progress. But something The Last of Us 2 really does, I think, well, is, like, you feel bad. You, you, feel, you yeah whatever fun you might have been having like as sick as it sounds to have like fun with violence video games are video games um but like you don't feel good by the end of this game you feel tired and you're like i don't even want to do this anymore and then you're like oh and that's how ellie feels like Mm -hmm. she's going on by a compulsion to finish this journey but not because she wants to and what i love about the ending i remember a lot of people were like she let abby go that was stupid and i was like that was the point you guys i don't know why that's hard for some of you but like in her last moment where she has the choice to either murder Abby and thus perpetuate this violent thing she's been living through and trying to be, she chooses not to and both liberates herself from the cycle of violence and frees herself from like this weight she's been carrying about failing Joel and failing at being who thinks she's supposed to be. And I'm just like, that catharsis was so good and so needed. And I think it really speaks to like, where this trope meets its natural conclusion is basically like breaking that cycle of violence that's passed from parent to child or enemy to enemy. I think it's a really good ending to have these characters sort of realize like, I have to choose to be better. And then they, and then when they do, it's great. And when they don't, it's tragic. So either way, it's good storytelling. <laughs> no, exactly. I just, I just would really like to, you know, read slash play slash watch um this trope in 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 a way that like one of them doesn't die you know like i would really i really appreciate that i do think that or like leave forever you know like at the end of walk into the sunset yeah exactly (laughs) run into the woods maybe like (laughs) so true reed silas i'm so sorry about your dad oh so sorry reed silas um but yeah but like even at the end of season two of the punisher like amy leaves and so true of her. Like, we as an audience out. <laughs> we don't want her around Frank because we love, we love Frank, we do, but we can, we can see the absolute pain that he has caused Amy, right? Yeah. And that's a part of the story. And she still cares for him, but she can also realize you are not good for me. And this is not something that can happen. And of course, you would love for, you know, for Frank and Amy to like, sit down somewhere and like have a cup of coffee and then go back to like their house in the middle of the woods and you know be a father and daughter but that's just not gonna happen but that's just not gonna happen they both know that and so she leaves and it's heartbreaking um but I did like the ending of that a lot more than I like most of these I think it's ultimately better too to have the characters basically be like we need to go our separate ways. Yeah. And I like how you phrase that too, of like her realization that it's like, I care about you, but I can't do this. And I know what kind of person I might end up becoming if that remains as it is. I will say 
if you want one of these stories where they don't die at the end, uh, God of War 4, spoiler alert, they live. That's all. Uh, that's I'm just going to keep plugging God of War 4 to the day I die. Um, not a sponsored but like, podcast. <laughs> yeah, we are not a sponsored podcast. However, um, unfortunately, because we think that everyone should engage with the things that we do everything mm-hmm. that we talk about we're going to be like and you should go watch that you should read it you should play that like unfortunately for us that's just how we are mm-hmm. um but yeah no i think this trope i would love to see it in the future where we're not seeing them one of them has to die at the end like i don't i don't know i think that there's this idea that like a functional family isn't realistic but then it's also like I don't play video games for the realism. Uh, I play (laughs) it for escapism. So it's like, I would actually be fine if everybody was fine. Would it make an interesting story? Probably not. But also, maybe I don't want that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think also something that was brought up in this article um, that I didn't even really think about was the absence of other women. The absence of mother figures. um, They're just not there. And I don't know why that never really occurred to me before, because now thinking about it, like, especially with The Last of Us, Ellie's mom is gone. We don't even ever meet her interlude. Ashley Johnson is like rumored to play Ellie's mom in the (laughs) in this um, HBO Mm -hmm. series. Mm -hmm. If that happens, (laughs) I'm literally going to die. No, because if we see her at all. Oh, my God. No, because imagine we see her writing the note that Ellie carries around with. I okay, Noah. We can't be doing this. <laughs> we can't be doing this. No, 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 no. We no. gotta, we gotta, we gotta wrap it up. We've been here for too long. We gotta wrap it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that though, like even that, her mom's out there. Tess is the only other like woman that is you know along with this journey, and then she dies, and it's yeah. so interesting to me. Um, yeah, and we obviously same thing with Vi. We never see it. her. Her mom literally dies in the first scene. <laughs> It's something that I honestly, like, I also hadn't put that much thought to. I was just like, yeah, it's a DILF. We love it. But then Mm -hmm. it's like the absence of any mothers in these stories is something notable that I'm like, and this is where I'm like, okay, if you want to have the tragedy of the whole, like, single parent must raise child, you can do that with a mom. Mm -hmm. I am all here for having hot moms fill the same role of hot dads. Okay. I think that would be great. But I also like, in honesty, literally didn't think about the fact it was like, oh, the mothers are absent. Or like Joel's wife is dead. Like even when you first meet him. Yeah. Like, well, I guess not dead. They were divorced. But like, as far as we don't really know. But like Sarah's mother is absent from minute one of this game. And the same is fairly true of most of these stories. Like even God of War, which I obviously really enjoy. It opens on their mother's funeral. Like she's just died. She doesn't even get a speaking line in the game. She just is gone and it's like it's interesting the absence of women in these stories is really felt because like it's almost as though the only woman that gets to exist in the story is the daughter and like that changes in part two obviously but it's not there for a lot of these and i'm like as we go forth into making stories like this it's like the mom can stay it's all right like you can have adult women be in these roles. Yeah. They don't vanish after they give birth to a child. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, mm, spoiler alert, you could actually be a a mother and also be a badass, you know? It's so, no, it's, it's genuinely bizarre. And like, honestly, guys, this trope is not hard to adapt in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Like, 
it's so easy actually and we here on this channel uh famously love women who are badasses like cannot stop talking about them just saying that i would not be even remotely averse to more of these stories where we get a mother in the lethal protector role i think too i think a lot of it is like oh well the audience especially for like video games and comics like the audience is male so they're not gonna want to read okay i actually think that you're wrong because something is killing the children is a huge comic series right now it's taking off and the main character is a woman who has very nurturing mother-like qualities at times and you know has a gay son for three volumes so so true i'm sold yeah it's really great um so i think that that excuse is not gonna work anymore actually and i would agree but yeah i guess in conclusion i love a hot dad I love a protective father uh, for so, so, so many reasons. Some of them deeply personal, but that's not relevant. Um, <laughs> but I would, but there are, there are pitfalls to this trope. And I think there are things that need to be addressed and there are things that we need to be cognizant of. Um, but overall, I think it's very slay. And one thing about me is I love a functional father-child relationship. And people should write more of those because allegedly they exist in the real world. I've been told. Mm-hmm. As far as I'm aware, <laughs> source sources seem to indicate they exist. <laughs> so thank you for joining us for our, our first official episode of Cowboys and Slaybots, the pop culture podcast where two gay people talk way too much about whatever they're thinking about that week. Episodes are going to drop bi-weekly, so every other Tuesday. And for more of our thoughts, content, and of course, random shit posting. Um, follow us on any social media platform at Cowboys and Bots. See you next time. Yeehaw. Yeehaw.